Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. TCK Potters, I'm your host, Scott Guasco, and this is episode 85 of the Candlestick Kids Fantasy Podcast. Today I'm joined again by special guest and senior broadcaster at the University of Oregon, Jonathan Rifkin. We're recapping the AFC side of the NFL draft and how it pertains to fantasy football. Before we get into today's episode, though, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Anchor. Stay tuned. Hey, TCK Potters, I want to give a shout out to Anchor, which is the podcast avenue we record with to bring you these episodes. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. Like, how do I record a podcast? How do I record an episode? How do I get the Candlestick Kids Fantasy Podcast onto all of the apps that people are listening to? And how can I reach as many people as possible for free and make money at the same time from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is Anchor. Anchor's the one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you up with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. Gaining some revenue from those podcast sponsors is essential to making necessary upgrades to the podcast and your overall brand. I appreciate how user-friendly Anchor is and how we can record our episodes via our computers or over the phone, similar to a voice memo or a phone call, and we can record these episodes, edit them down as needed, upload them, and boom, the episode is ready to launch. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and even make money doing it, go to anchor.fm forward slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. One more time, that's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Welcome to Music City, home of the 2019 NFL Draft. With the first pick, the Oakland Raiders select quarterback Jamarcus Russell. That doesn't sound right. No. With the uh, second choice in the draft, the San Diego Chargers select quarterback Brian Leaf. Wrong again. Can we get serious now? With the first pick, the Arizona Cardinals select Kyler Murray. Second pick, the San Francisco 49ers select Nick Bosa. With the third pick, the New York Jets select Quinnen Williams. The Oakland Raiders select Cleland Farrell. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Devin White. Carry the face of his old little one. Jonathan, nice to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well, Sky. Happy to be back. Uh, our little hiatus had me sad because I enjoyed our last episode so much. Yeah, man. Well, we got round two today. We're going to rock the AFC side. Listeners, if you missed out on the NFC side back on Tuesday, please, please, please do yourself a favor. Rewind the podcast a little bit. Go back to Tuesday. Find out the NFC breakdown of the NFL draft as it pertains to fantasy football. My man, Jonathan Rifkin, so good to have you back, brother. Senior broadcaster and analyst at the University of Oregon. 
right here in Eugene, Oregon. Um, we gave a backstory of who you are, what you do on the collegiate level in the previous podcast. So we don't need to do that again on Tuesday, but just in general, what is something that someone in your mind frame, who's a little bit more collegiate based than maybe someone like myself on this podcast, who's more on the NFL side, although of course we both pay attention to both sides. What is something that you look at maybe a little bit deeper coming out of college, going into the, NFL. We've been very soft on this podcast the last couple months after the Super Bowl. I haven't done a. I've done a couple um, mock drafts just because I'm antsy and I want to do those. And we've had a few episodes, but I've purposely not done a ton of content yet because it's just so hard to like <laughs> guess what these rookies are going to be without knowing what team they're going to be on their situation. All these other things. Someone like you studying it going into the NFL draft, and now that these these players are set on teams. What is kind of the mindset for you on the collegiate side with these players coming into the NFL draft and now looking at the overall NFL fantasy spectrum? Yeah, there's, there's two main points that I look at when looking at players that get drafted out of college. The first one is uh, the system that they're being drafted into. College is not a systemic college football. I should say it's not a systemic sport. They typically coaches will typically outline the basis of their offense and their de defense based on their best players. They're not fitting players into their system because typically when you recruit, you build your system around the players that you recruit. Now the NFL is completely different because these players are drafted for the specific system. So the question is, is where are these players coming from and will they fit into the system that they're going into? That's the biggest thing I look for. The second thing I look for is have these players notable moments throughout the season against teams that are to the likes of an NFL team. I know sample size is a little bit different because, uh, you know, in college you're playing FCS teams. Sometimes you're playing mid-major teams or you're on a mid-major team. So you don't have the level of competition that perhaps a power five player might have, but that doesn't mean that uh, you don't play against good teams. This is division one football for the most part. There were a few D2 players, but we don't have to get into that. But, you know, in division one football, every player on the field is a high caliber player, whether you're playing for team number 132 or team number one in the rankings, it doesn't matter. So I like to look at the, the playing field that these players getting drafted played on this past season, who they played with and how they did. And that kind of gives me an indication of what kind of player they could be in the NFL, if they could even be an NFL player. And we'll talk about this later on in this conversation, Sky, when we get to some of these players who came from mid-major programs that I have some questions surrounding because that's the biggest thing is sample size. Did they play enough good teams where I could say, okay, I'm confident that against an NFL defense in this system, they will flourish. So those are the two big things that I look for uh, with players coming out of the draft. I think that's a great call, especially the competition side of it. I mean, you hear all this, this banter about, you know, Alabama, for example, or Clemson or Ohio state, whoever the best team is for said year can potentially beat the worst NFL team, which that's a whole bag of worms we're not going to get into for another conversation but I think this idea of these lower uh lower school players coming out running backs like star running backs out of say like the Mac or something like that um versus even like a third running back on Alabama that third running back on Alabama is probably better than exactly the, the star running back on say a Mac conference uh team so you know, sometimes they don't have the notoriety or the draft pedigree because of their position. But we've Alabama, for example, their starting running back and their backup get drafted every single year. 
it, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, some of these guys, Trent Richardson, you know, Derek Henry is still like needing to kind of prove himself. Mark Ingram's had a solid career. Some of these guys, you don't necessarily, you know, pan out to be at the caliber they were at Alabama uh, when related to college, because when you get to the pros, it's an all-star team of college, right? So exactly, I, I totally agree with you. I think those are uh, two great points. And, and that's the biggest thing, too, that people have to remember, and we'll touch on this more as we go along in this conversation, is that college is so different than the NFL, no matter what. Like, you could be the best player in college, and you just may not pan out in the NFL. We see it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the top 15 picks, we may never talk about half of them ever again after this conversation. So... It's just, it's so interesting, you know, when you look back at players drafted in the fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds, you know, five, six, seven years ago, and how they're stars now versus, you know, players who drafted in top 15, top 30, top two rounds who are no longer relevant. So, you know, it's so hard to predict because college is just so different, but uh, we can continue that here in just a moment. Totally agree. Well, let's knock it out, man. Let's get into the AFC West. And again, listeners, dial back to Tuesday. Check out the NFC side. We break down all four divisions, team by team. We go through the fantasy-relevant picks, as well as a couple linemen who are going to be relevant for, say, the quarterback protection or opening holes for running backs, as well as a couple uh, premier defensive players for the DST folks. But let's jump into it, man. AFC West, we'll start with the Denver Broncos. They made a few moves early. Uh, to snake some of the picks um, away from the Steelers, which I thought was a kind of a nice move on your rival there. And they managed back-to-back picks in the second round after they moved up. Uh, some notable names here, number 20 overall pick, Noah Fant, tight end out of Iowa, as well as Drew Locke, the quarterback out of Missouri. These are two positions that, uh, you know, these, neither one of these guys is probably going to start right away, but I think they could each – have a significant role, at least on the Broncos, midseason. Fantasy, I don't think they're going to be relevant right away this year. Uh, tight end just being young and Drew Locke needing to catch his bearings. But the, I think the, the Denver Broncos had a really uh, rough season last year with injuries and everything else, quarterback play and all that. But I think they're a decent franchise quarterback away from being competitive once again as the team on offense and defense has built around them. So why don't you dig into Noah Fant first and then Drew Locke. Yeah, Noah Fan is interesting because he has the speed to beat linebackers. He ran a four five forty, but you could throw him in the slot against the nickel defense, and he'll probably overpower whatever nickel defender is guarding him because most of them tend to be a little bit smaller and faster. So his catch radius, as a byproduct, increases. Like you said, he's young, and he comes from a system that very much benefits tight ends. We'll see how they plug him in. I don't think that he will primarily be used as a pass catcher. Um, at the beginning, I think he'll be used more as a run blocker who will then be put out in the flat, possibly as a dump down guy or a dump out guy, if you will. Um, but like you said, it's going to take some time to develop. He has the tools uh, to really be effective against defenses who load up the box or want to play man with that nickel. But like you said, I don't think that he has any relevance, at least for the beginning of the season. I think that they might find a spot for him because he can play the slot. And we know with the Broncos, they do like to rotate the receivers, especially in the slot. So maybe they put him in there again against the nickel defense, but uh, in straight man to man or straight zone coverage, I don't necessarily being hit, seeing him, excuse me, being that productive right out, right out of the gates. Uh, Drew Locke, he's a really interesting story. So back in August on my podcast, The Unprofessionals, I had a hot take that Drew Locke was going to be a Heisman candidate after his 44 touchdown season back in 2017. Well, that didn't happen. He still threw for over 3,400 yards. Actually, he was two yards shy of 3,500. 
Um, and he still threw for 28 touchdowns, which is phenomenal. Only eight interceptions, and that's the biggest thing. For a guy to throw as much as he does with his sample size, over 430 attempts, to only throw eight interceptions on a, on a Power 5 team against some of the best defenses in the country, that's what impresses me. Very smart pocket IQ. He has a heck of an arm because he can throw you, you know, a 50, 60-yard pass right into that sweet spot for a wide receiver. And his red zone IQ is really, really high. And I know in college it's very different because it's more boomer bust plays than red zone offense like the NFL. But he is very, very good at short yardage situations in the red zone and throwing the ball where receivers can catch them. And that is really important. So between his low interception total against some very good defenses overall in in college at Mizzou, uh, and his high pocket and red zone IQ, I could see him being very productive. The one thing that he needs really is his accuracy. And what better way to learn than from backing up Joe Flacco, who, regardless of what you think of him, can still hit wide receivers pretty well consistently. So I think for Drew Locke, it's going to take some time, but he will eventually emerge, I think, as the starter for this team. I agree. And I, I you know, I've been terming uh, – Joe Flacco as uncle Flacco here on the podcast for the last year. (laughs) And I I think that he's just going to remain in that role. Um, And, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I don't think anybody really is at this point, a huge fan of of Joe Flacco, but I think he was a perfect um, uncle, if you will, uh, for Lamar Jackson last year in Baltimore. And I think he's going to be again, that person this year for one year for drew Locke, And that's just that, you know, 15 year veteran who's been in the system, won a super bowl, been to the top, been very competitive, for many, many, many years and knowing the system and the NFL speed and reading defenses. And we've seen how valuable that can be to certain quarterbacks that have that ability to learn behind somebody else. Um, And I think that Drew Locke, again, not necessarily relevant this year right away, but I think he will play midseason because, first of all, Flacco just probably won't stay healthy. Uh, But secondly, I think they'll just have to throw Drew Locke out there and see what they have um, as as Elway is going to have to prove his uh, move up into the second round for a second pick. But also I think something to note here is not fantasy relevant per se, but Dalton Risner was also picked uh, the pick right before Drew Locke, actually uh, offensive lineman out of Kansas State. And he's played all the offensive lineman positions in college. And this is potentially a center QB tandem for many, many years to come there in the second round for the Broncos. So I like the picks Um, again. I'm not sure how relevant it is right away from fantasy. However, a lot of this stuff, especially in this NFL draft, so many of these players are not going to be relevant like this fantasy season, maybe at all. Uh, Certainly not top notch. And of course, there's always some standouts, but a lot of these guys are mostly like dynasty league conversations or keeper leagues and stuff. I personally think Noah Fant and Drew Locke are great dynasty pickups with maybe a two, three year vision uh, potentially, because I do see the Broncos, you know, kind of uh, a quality quarterback and and a tight end position um, away potentially. So We'll move on to the Chargers, who had one pick in each round. There's only one uh, name to talk about. I mean, we don't even need to talk about him very much because he's not going to play unless Philip River gets hurt. That's Easton Stick out of North Dakota State, quarterback in the fifth round. I'll get to him in just one second, but I just wanted to mention the Chargers had seven picks, and they spent six of them on defensive players. So their offense clearly is loaded. Um, They have all pros all over the field, pro bowlers all over the field. Um, potential future Hall of Famer and and, uh, Phillip Rivers still at the top of his game and very competitive for potentially a Super Bowl and they just stacked up on defensive players so we don't need to mention a lot of these guys but if you're in a DST league 
I mean, the Bears are hard to uh, hard to argue with, of course, with Khalil Mack single handedly destroying the league. But right right after <laughs> that, if you're looking at the next tier, uh, for me, it's the Chargers, the second DST in fantasy football. So we don't need to get into the whole draft, but they spent six uh, six of their seven picks in this year's draft on defense. That quarterback, Easton Stick, um, challenged or broke all of Carson Wentz's records at North Dakota State. And uh, GM Tom Telesco uh, hinted at possibly that Stick could earn a similar role that Taysom Hill does over in New Orleans. That's not super fantasy sexy, but I think that just means that they're trying to get Easton Stick as an athlete onto the field. Um, not much to really talk about here, but again, potentially a, a uh, you know, predecessor or uh, uh, really somebody to take over for Phillip Rivers in the next couple of years when he moves on. Do you have any comments at all about uh, Easton Stick? Yeah, you know, I'm always wary about North Dakota State athletes. Carson Wentz, I mean, say what you want, but that guy has an NFL presence, and he had an NFL presence at North Dakota. The only reason North Dakota State is not a FBS football program is because they want to continue yep. winning championships. They they recruit so well out of that region. I mean, you look at just the Charger draft picks in general, Notre Dame, University of Sioux Falls, which isn't even a, a, a Division I it's program. South Dakota, <laughs> or, or got, Iowa, yeah, right in that area. Yeah, and and they actually they got two Notre Dame prospects and a Cincinnati prospect. I mean, most of these really strong players are coming from that region. So that region is really, really good. North Dakota State does an incredible job recruiting the top players out of the Midwest to come and play for them and to absolutely tear up the FCS. Now, Easton Stick was no exception. But when you go back and you look at the tape and you compare him to Carson Wentz, the system really benefited Stick, but there was a presence that he lacked. Carson Wentz, the way he composed himself, he was just NFL ready, it seemed like. And he's proven it, I think, minus the injuries and some of the miscues. Still developing, but overall, the NFL presence is there. For somebody like Stick, phenomenal college quarterback in the system that he played in, I don't see him translating that to the NFL. He's a great athlete. He's 6'1", 224, so he can run. And like you said, maybe Taysom Hill kind of forged a role for quarterbacks like this to still be in a system but not necessarily be a pure quarterback. I don't know if Stick is the future of this team. I kind of hope he's not because they're really putting their eggs in one basket with this guy then. Um but I do think that he will make some sort of contribution to this team offensively. I'm not exactly sure how fantasy relevant that'll be, though, at least off the bat. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think you nailed it. The, the difference between Carson Wentz and Stick really on paper is just the rushing. They both can throw the ball well. They both can run the ball well. But Stick had, had um, you know, kind of that uh, first read, not available to, you know, hold it down and run it. And I actually watched their, their championship game, uh, which they're in every single year. And, and he's a stud. So he, you know, fifth round quarterback, we'll see what happens. If, again, he's not, he doesn't expect to play for the next two or three years, I'm sure. But uh, if anything were to happen to Phillip Rivers, Easton stick is jumping into the best possible situation of any backup quarterback, arguably uh, in the league, especially a rookie quarterback. So um, he could, be successful strictly because his team is so talented. But I kind of agree with you that um, I'm not sure that he is going to be Carson Wentz uh, part due, if you will. But we'll, we shall see on the Chargers. But again, I think their defense is just reloading. I think the Chargers, once again, will be a serious contender if they can get by New England, which has been Rivers' uh, nemesis for, of course, the last 15 years. Let's get into the Raiders. Uh, questionable pick at number four, which we'll get to, of course. Uh, but a solid draft <laughs> overall. Um, they're trying to fill voids of Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper still. 
in the first round, fourth pick overall, as you heard on the montage getting into the episode, Cleland Farrell, defensive end, Clemson, which I'll get your your uh, your thoughts on that. And number four, the one I really like is Josh Jacobs, running back out of Alabama, another first-round pick, and their third first-round pick, three picks later, Jonathan Adams, safety out of Mississippi State. So, of course, the Raiders had three first-round picks. They pick up a defensive end from Clemson, a running back from Alabama, safety from Mississippi State. I head scratcher at number four, but they had their reasons. Of course, they have Mike Mayock now uh, running the show there, who has been a draft analyst and a, a college football uh, NFL draft analyst forever. Um, so you would think he knows what he's doing. Um, what are your thoughts here? Also, another name to me- uh, mention down the list there. Fifth round uh, wide receiver out of Clemson, Hunter Renfro, who I like a lot. But let's stick with the first rounders first. Yeah, Cle- uh, Cleveland Farrell's interesting. Uh, high risk, high reward, I would say. They obviously jumped the gun trying to fill that void of Mac, and and the Raider fans are beginning to grow impatient uh, with both the offense and I think the defense. Not to mention that they're going to be moving to Vegas. So there's, yeah, the the Raiders are probably as an organization in the most precarious spot in the NFL because there's just a lot of unknown, and this is a big one now because, like you said, they they drafted him so high up at number four when there were much higher rated defensive linemen on the board. So the, but you know, his, his spurt ability off the block is really quick. He's big. Uh, and he developed in a system that is really good for defensive ends. Like we've, we've learned that over the years. So the one thing I will say is that he had 11 and a half sacks last season. And for a guy who was not an every down guy, because Clemson will Jimbo Fisher essentially would full, uh, pull out, not Jimbo Fisher. Um, Debo Sweeney. Why am I? Dabble yes, Sweeney. thank you. Yeah. Dabo Sweeney. Yeah. Jimbo Fisher's at AM. So, um, what Dabo Sweeney would do is when they were blowing out teams, which is pretty consistently, he would take out the first and second teamers. So, for someone like Cleveland Farrell, 11 and a half sacks last season may not seem great, but he had a small sample size because he didn't have to play consistently. So, I think that, again, high risk, high reward is probably my motto with this guy. I understand the pick. If it works out, and obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and you could say that about any pick. But I think with him, if they can develop him to be even half of what Matt could be, and who knows, maybe his potential is there, I think they'll be satisfied uh, with that draft position. Moving on to Josh Jacobs, yes. correct? Okay, cool. So, yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned during our conversation, Bama had their, their top two running backs drafted once again. Uh, he's more of a ground-and-pound runner, almost like a hybrid Marshawn Lynch, if you will. Uh you know, they had they signed Doug Martin. Josh Jacobs has much better hands than Doug Martin. And he's a lot more patient than many running backs that we see in the backfield at an NFL or even at a collegiate level. The problem is that he doesn't have a lot of balance. You won't really see him cut towards that A-gap. And then if it's not there, cut horizontally and try to go around the edge like a lot of those patient running backs do. What he does is he'll be patient and he'll wait for a spot to open. And then he'll commit. So the patience is there, but he doesn't have that, oh, the A-gap is closing. I need to find a different route to run. So that's my biggest question with him is he is going to get hit a lot because he likes to run right at guys. Whether he can be productive after the initial contact is where the big questions come for me. Um, you know, he could be a two or three yard guy. He could be a seven or eight yard guy. It really just depends on how he reacts to the initial contact and because Alabama's offensive line was so good that a gap was almost always there Mm -hmm. for him so 
you know, there are there are some questions just surrounding that specific aspect of his game, just the, the decision-making right off the bat. But I think, you know, you put him in the backfield with Martin, if, if even if Marshawn comes back and Isaiah Crowell going down, he's going to carve out a role. And I think that being a ground-and-pound runner is really going to benefit uh, his red zone offense. And I think that if you're looking for a guy to get you some, some garbage time touchdowns or, uh, you know, three or four yard touchdown runs, he's going to be that guy right off the bat. I don't know how fantasy relevant again, he'll be because there's a lot of questions with him and then the backfield overall with the Raiders and just how the offense is being managed. But I think that, you know, down the line this season, he could really carve out a really solid role for himself and be that red zone back that they're looking for. My early guess is that <clears throat> Doug Martin's going to get probably the starting you know, starting role, depending on how the preseason goes, but it'll probably get the starting role. There'll probably be a one, two punch for the first couple of weeks. But I just think, you know, uh, at this point, I think Josh Jacobs is just more talented than Doug Martin. We've seen what Doug Martin can and can't do over the last couple of years. Um, I, you know, Josh Jacobs does have some hands, as you mentioned, uh, Isaiah Crowell, unfortunately is down for the rest of the season with a torn Achilles. So he's out. Um, beast mode, Marshawn Lynch has actually hinted already that if the Raiders wanted him back, he, he would definitely consider coming out of retirement potentially. Um, now I think Marshawn knows that he wouldn't be the number one guy, but maybe give them some depth. And of course he lost half of his season last year to injury as well. So I think this is an interesting situation. I'm not super bullish on the Raiders and, and, uh, growing up in the Bay area, you know, being, being a Niners fan, but of course, you know, growing up just a few miles away from the uh, Oakland Coliseum and, and Daniel, our co-host, lives down the street. Um, we're very much in tune with with that general atmosphere down there. And it's been a long time since the Raiders have been competitive on a consistent basis. And I think that there's a lot of good moves on paper. Antonio Brown and, and uh, Ter- um, Terrell Williams and some other things coming into town. I think it's exciting. Uh, but if these <laughs> – if these first rounders don't pan out immediately, uh, Oakland slash Vegas Raider fans are going to <laughs> lose their minds because they're I, getting very impatient, it, as you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. And the one thing I will say to your point about, you know, the wide receivers coming in is a lot of this does end up being on Derek Carr, because if he can manage the passing game consistently where he's a threat, then that definitely opens up the running game. And if the running game's open, then Josh Jacobs will likely be able to succeed. Now, if Derek Carr digresses to what we know Derek Carr can digress to or regress, I should say, to, that's going to make it a lot harder because then defenses won't see the air raid as much of a threat when they do turn to that type of that style of offense. And they'll be buckling down in the middle. And for Josh Jacobs, who is a an up and down runner, not a side to side runner, that could really hurt his uh, production value. So it really does fall on. The, the back of, of Derek Carr and how he manages that offense on the field. Uh, Josh Jacobs reminds me quickly of, of uh, Derek Henry too. Just kind of like big playability. God's a little bit of hands, kind of a, you know, downhill runner, but I think he can make it happen. So we'll see what goes on in this offense. Speaking of those receivers really quick, let's get into Hunter Renfro just for a second. and We'll move on. Oh, great slot option. I actually really like this pick. Uh, he's a little bit undersized. But one big thing that we're seeing in the NFL as defenders get bigger is we're seeing more zone defense and less man defense. Not saying that man defense isn't prevalent because cover twos are more prevalent still than any other play. But we are seeing a lot more zone defense as these as these defenses get larger in terms of physiologically, not more players. Um, So for him, he's undersized. But against the zone defense, 
he flourishes. Uh, he's a, an amazing seam route runner, which means that he can find the seam in between two defenders who are playing his own. And as, so, as long as that pass just hits him right on the on that dot, right in that wheelhouse in his catch radius, he's going to make something out of it. He's also very quick. Uh, so you throw him out in the slot, you throw a post to him, and he can get you solid 15, 20 yards. He's not going to be touted for his explosiveness, or I should say his big playability, if you will. Um, and I don't think that they need him for that. So I, I think against zone defenses, he's going to be very effective. But again, he's undersized. So in a man situation, I don't see him being very productive. And Derek Carr does like to check it down. So I think that's a great call over the middle. And they, uh, they of course, lost uh, Jared Cook to New Orleans. So I think that's going to be a nice um, middle of the field replacement there. Let's move on to the Chiefs, who are trying to compensate for Tyreek Hill's potential absence with the second round pick. Uh, Miko Hardman out of Georgia. Uh, we're not going to get into Tyreek Hill. As we mentioned multiple times on the podcast, we um, have a responsibility to bring things up that matter. Uh, but so far, this we don't really have an answer. So we're just not going to get to that. There's all, all sorts of things. He could miss the whole season. He could be expelled from the league in, in forever. Uh, he's so far you know, removed from team activities. We just don't know exactly what's going to happen yet, so we'll keep that on pause. Nonetheless, the Chiefs picking – a an SEC receiver in the second round uh, makes me think that they're not very confident that Tyreek Hill's maybe going to come back to the team at all. Uh, let's talk about Michael Hardman, wide receiver out of Georgia, 56th pick overall in the second round of the Chiefs. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of a scramble, but I think they got the right guy if they're trying to eventually re- replace Tyreek because Hardman is almost a mold of Tyreek. Yep. I mean, he ran a four, three, three, um, 40 yard dash. It was a second 40 yard dash, but it's still official at the scouting combine. Uh, he's a, a really good special teams kick returner, both, uh, as a punt kick returner or a punt returner and a kick returner off kickoffs. Um, and I think that he can impact the game with few catches, which is something that Tyreek Hill was a master at. He'd get three catches for 105 yards and a mm-hmm. touchdown. And, you know, that would be the the biggest impact of the game offensively for the Chiefs and a big reason why they win. So I think that Hardman, developmentally, he's going to have some – I don't think he's going to have some issues. I think it's going to just be a, a couple of weeks. I don't think it's going to take that long, but I think it's going to take a couple of weeks for him to get in the flow of that offense. He's not going to be a, a catch-and-bolt kind of guy. He's not going to get you seven or eight receptions in the game. But I could see him being a, a three, four, five reception a game 90 to 100 yards in a touchdown kind of guy because that big play potential is there. And we know what Pat Mahomes can do. He could throw that ball, you know, 150 yards down the field. So to have somebody uh, in the hypothetical absence of Tariq Hill, this is that guy. And I could see him being relevant, uh, if not in the first two or three weeks, very soon after. I agree. And I think to think that he's going to come in and be Tariq Hill is ridiculous. Um, But – Tyreek Hill not being there, I think, is a huge hit to Patrick Mahomes. Now, I don't think he's not going to be Patrick Mahomes, but so much of what Mahomes was able to do last year was kind of what we talked about on the last episode. Play breaks down for one second. Mahomes goes, oh, shit, gives Tyreek the look, and Tyreek just like starts running around to get open, and yep. he throws it 60 yards, and Tyreek's faster than everybody else, scores a 75-yard touchdown, or they have those little, like, you know, reverse uh, touch passes that he was able to score on, those kind of things. If Hardman's able to be that versatile receiver, he's going to fit in and Andy Reid will make gold out of him immediately like he does everybody else. 
But to think that he's going to be Tyreek Hill right away and, you know, to draft him like that as a rookie in the NFL, I think would be silly uh, for fantasy teams. But again, as I keep mentioning, I think he's a great late round option to pick up and just see what happens. And certainly a uh, dynasty option for fantasy and, teams. And the one thing I will say also is that you have to remember, he came from Georgia, who was a top five offensive line or who had a top five offensive line in the country. And they had Jake Fromm, who next year yep. may actually we'll see what happens, but he's going to be one of the first three quarterbacks taken in the draft. So, you know, to have the luxury of someone like from with that offensive line, Hardman never really had to improvise on offense. Like you said, Tyreek Hill was masterful at, at when he got that look from, from Mahomes, he was able to improvise it and make something out of nothing. We weren't really able to see a lot of that from Hardman because Georgia was never put into that position consistently. And Jake Frome was so good also at getting the getting rid of the ball so quickly that it didn't matter too much. So that was a really good point, Sky. It'll be interesting to see how he can adapt to uh, to broken down plays like that. Right, but he will find himself on the field because you mentioned Tyreek Hill. Before he was Tyreek Hill in fantasy teams, he was killing it being Devin Hester returning kicks. And if you can at least get in front of the coach's eyes, make a couple of big splash plays, they're going to put athletes on the field. So if he just starts as a punt returner, but he can return one or two early in the season, they'll get him on the field, I'm sure. But nonetheless, I'm excited for him. I just think, you know, it might take a take a little bit to get him moving. But he's in one of the best offenses in the league, arguably the, the best quarterback in the league right now as far as big splash plays for fantasy are concerned. So uh, I like the move there. Let's move on to the AFC East. And once again, uh, the Patriots just reload with a bunch of, I don't want to say no names by any means, but just kind of like not sexy names, but the right pick for who they need when they need them. And uh, the Patriots nailed it once again with lesser names. And uh, let's start right off the bat. Number 32, last pick in the first round, Nikhil Harry, Arizona State, wide receiver, big physical target, maybe a Gronk-esque replacement in the red zone. I love, love, love this pick for NFL, and I love it for for fantasy. Uh, this is my favorite pick in the Me draft. Me too. Not only because when Bill Belichick picks a wide receiver, they're probably pretty good, um, but because I absolutely love Nikhil Harry and anybody who's listened to my talk show, Quack Smack, here at Oregon um, during the football season, most of the time when we weren't talking about Oregon offense, we're talking about Nikhil Harry. <laughs> and, you know, this guy – he was the product of a bad situation and he was still incredible. Yep. If you do, if you remember prior to the football season last year in the way too early 2019 NFL draft, he was a potential top five mm -hmm. pick. He was the number one wide receiver scouted to be taken in the NFL draft. The only reason that his name value went down was because Arizona state underperformed and that really hurt the Nikhil Harry brand nationally. So, you know, in the Pac-12, we all know Nikhil Harry. We know him as not even arguably the There's best wide receiver yeah. in the Pac-12. You know, and for an offensive heavy conference, that's saying a lot. But nationally, because Arizona State and Manny Wilkins just – Manny Wilkins had a lot of problems, a lot of accuracy problems as a quarterback at Arizona State. Um, and, and that really hurt Nikhil Harry's production. It wasn't because Nikhil Harry underperformed. It's because his quarterback – underperformance because their offensive line was the worst in the Pac-12, if not the second worst, maybe behind Stanford. That's a whole other conversation. Anyways, so, you know, this is all I have to say about Nikhil Harry. The intangibles are there. He doesn't need much development. The size is there. He's bigger than most cornerbacks. 
and he has a very, very, very large catch radius. I talked about J.J. Arcega-Whiteside drafted out of Stanford um, in our in our NFC conversation. This guy is like J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, but with a times five catch radius. This guy, you throw it within the vicinity, and he's going to probably get there. So um, jump ball versatility, downfield versatility, red zone versatility. You need it from this guy, and he will probably bring it. So as much as I don't want to see the Patriots succeed, I absolutely love this pick. And I, I don't see any reason why Nikhil Harry won't be a productive wide receiver right off the bat. I totally agree. And I've been hearing some comps to potentially being the Josh Gordon that the Patriots didn't really get. Uh, just kind of that comp, big body. He's a little bit bigger than Josh he, Gordon, actually. He so is. I, yeah. I think that, yeah. And just having, you know, giving Tom Brady has always – you know, when he's had that guy, Randy Moss, of course, you know, just broke the league for a couple of years. So that's kind of a, a ridiculous comp. But even like Dion Branch and some of these other guys that Tom Brady's had over the years that he's been able to just like shoot down the sideline. And if Edelman's not open, Gronk's not open, that guy is. Uh, you know, Chris Hogan, even um, who hasn't really had much of a career elsewhere, but Tom Brady made him relevant. Um, I think this is huge, man. And, and you just mentioned when Bill Belichick picks a receiver, it matters. That's absolutely correct. He never picks a receiver in the first round, though. Like, I think he's literally never picked a receiver in the first round. Nikhil Harry's the first one. So for him to go up there in the first round, in the first round with that pick is a huge deal. And you're right. You and I, you know, uh, just being Pac-12 locals and 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 kind of focusing in mostly on that conference because of where we live and, and what we focus on and things, we're a little more keen on Nikhil Harry. But I think you're absolutely right, man. He was – in the national scheme last year, Arizona state um, fell off a little bit. Therefore his brand fell off. I think you said it absolutely perfectly. Therefore, you know, Marquise Brown and, and, and uh, you know, DK Metcalf and some of these other guys started taking the spotlight, but Nikhil Harry is the real deal. And he couldn't have found a better position for himself. Get, you know, catching balls from arguably the best quarterback ever. And it's just an unbelievable fit for him. So that's going to be a huge move in fantasy uh, soon come. I'm sure couple more picks. Um, we don't have to spend too much time on the rest of the uh, Patriots picks, but I w- did want to mention in the third round, they had three more picks. Chase Vinovich of uh, Michigan, the D end, uh, I just think is an absolute machine. Um, he'll be a great pick uh, for their defense there. And then Damian Harris, we just talked about Josh Jacobs out of, out of Alabama. Damian Harris was also drafted by the Patriots in the third round. I'd like to talk about him for a second. Uh, running back and Yandi uh, Kajusti who's an offensive tackle out of West Virginia. Not much to talk about there. I just wanted to mention that he was kind of arguably the best offensive line or one of the best offensive tackles in college football. And he gets, I think, unarguably the best offensive line coach in uh, Skarnecchia out of, um, out of New England, who has been, you know, molding Hall of Famers uh, there for, for a very long time. So I think that's a great move for him and someone that can, uh, you know, be – covering up Tom Brady for, for, you know, as many years as Tom decides to play. But I think that was a great move for them to uh, get in another offensive lineman early. Let's talk about uh, Damian Harris. And then if you want to jump down to Jared Stinham, the quarterback out of Auburn that I thought was a uh, interesting pick who could potentially uh, be Tom Brady's replacement, but we've been saying that for 15 years. So not sure there, but let's talk Damian Harris first. Yeah. I mean, Damian Harris, like we said, another Alabama running back, uh, benefited from early strong Alabama offensive line benefited from consistent reps with uh, both Josh Jacobs and himself. Again, not a lot of sample size because he didn't have to play very often because Bamble was blowing out teams. So 
it'll be interesting to see how he does in a system that already has at least three established mm-hmm. running backs. That's my that's my big question because we know this guy can run. We know that with a strong offensive line, he could be productive. And you just mentioned Kajusti, who I think is a phenomenal pick. By the way, Will Greer was not Will Greer unless this guy was on the offensive yep. line. So, you know, a top-notch pick. And as a 101st pick, I think that was a steal. That's besides the point. I think that, um, like I said, Damian Harris benefited from a strong offensive line. But I, I don't know how he's going to be able to carve a consistent role with Sonny Michelle, with James White, with Rex Burkhead, all currently established. And we know that the Patriots do like to use their depth, their running back depth, all the time. But I don't see them going four deep. So it'll be interesting over the course of the season to see how they use Harris and then how he takes advantage of game. Can he get you 30 yards and, and a couple of first downs. Can he get you short yardage uh, first downs? Can he get you red? I don't know. In this system, I don't see him beating out, definitely beating out Sonny Michelle. He certainly doesn't have the hands that James White has. And Rex Burkhead, you know, as say what you want, I think that this guy does have a future in this league if he could stay healthy regardless of what team he's on. So, there are just some questions regarding Damian Harris in this system for me. He was in a system that didn't have four, three, sorry, uh, established running backs or basically established running backs. I could see him probably playing a bigger role and maybe carving out a spot for himself. But this is a tough system for him to be productive in, I think. I agree. I think this will leave James White alone, or as we refer to him on, on the podcast, James White who's an absolute beast, Uh, but I I think he has his role established. He'll be fine. I think that uh, Damian Harris, Sonny Michelle, and Rex Burkhead are all going to kind of eat each other this year, and I was mega hyped on Sonny Michelle last year, and then we saw in the playoffs when they just rode him, you know, all the way through. He was an absolute beast when he was able to get, you know, 20 touches a game. Right. But I think this will cut into his workload more so than anybody else in that in that backfield. And I think, you know, it, this might just knowing the Patriots, you know, Bill Belichick cares about winning Super Bowls. Clearly, he doesn't give a shit about stats or who's the hot hand or any of that stuff. He, he goes, you know, this guy has a knee problem in Sonny Michelle. Rex Burkhead has injuries as well. Damian Harris is fresh legs. He's young, coming out of an NFL offense. Plug him right in. And I think, that, I think dude, they could run a four – a four-headed monster in New England. And, you know, without a ton of wide receiver uh, weapons, and, of course, Gronk being gone now, I wouldn't put it past him to run the ball, you know, 30 times a game. And you know what? That's a great point also because I was under the impression the entire year last year that the the Patriots are pulling a a Golden State Warriors. They were just cruising because they know they're going to win the division. They know they're going to get a first-round bye. They know they're probably going to make it to the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter who they plug and play. They're going to be successful – come postseason, and I think that that's the same thing. They're probably going to run 35, 40 times a game because they need to preserve Tom Brady for that playoff push. Yep. So maybe Damian Harris is the guy that they put in for the back ha- back end of the season to save the legs of Sonny Michelle and Rex Burkhead and even give Damian Harris some sample size so that way they know where they can utilize him in the postseason. So, you know, you're absolutely right, Sky. And that was something that I missed was when, when the Patriots cruise, they kind of play everybody. And yep. this is going to be another year where, uh, you know, the Bills are going to be – interesting but I don't think the Patriots have much competition and they know it and I that may really benefit Damian Harris 
And as I mentioned, those running backs, you know, James White has done a good job of staying healthy, but Rex Burkhead has missed a ton of time. Sony Michelle got hurt for a few games last year. One of those guys goes down with any significant time. Damien Harris becomes that guy. And they are the quintessential next man up, fill the role, be a beast, right? I mean, if Damien Harris gets a full workload, I think, I mean, I really think he could run into some serious uh, serious um, opportunity there in New England. So love that pick there. Um, any quick uh, quick mentions of Jared Stidham, and then we'll just move on. Yeah, I'm, I was never big on Jared Stidham. Uh, I thought that he had a low pocket IQ. He moves out of the pocket very well. That's probably his biggest strength is his ability to elude uh, a collapsing pocket and some defensive linemen trying to sack him. But uh, he doesn't have a lot of downfield ability. Like I said, not a lot of strong pocket presence. And he seems to fold under pressure. If he can't get outside, and create some space to run or, you know, dump down into the flat, I he, he, he folds and takes the sack. And, and for me, you can't do that as an NFL quarterback, and you're certainly not going to be able to do that in Bill Belichick's system. I don't really see him being the quarterback of the future for the Patriots. I see them picking him as an insurance policy and nothing more. Fair enough. I, I, I don't want to go any further without mentioning the fifth-round pick by the Patriots, Jake Bailey, punter out of Stanford. Uh, you meant, you asked me if I liked the the uh, draft pick in the fourth round by the Niners grabbing a punter, and I said I do like it only because the Patriots did the same thing. <laughs> so, therefore, <laughs> I just wanted to make a mention that they also picked up a punter in the fifth round. I thought that was, thought that was funny. But um, let's move on to Buffalo, and this is really a great draft for a rebuilding and surging Bills team, number nine overall, of course, Ed Oliver, absolute animal uh, defensive tackle out of Houston. One of the best picks in the draft, in my opinion, and a great addition to an already nasty defense in Buffalo. They're another sleeper DST uh, for sure uh, for me as well. And Cody Ford uh, in the second round offensive tackle out of Oklahoma was a big get to protect quarterback Josh Allen. But the name I want to talk about is third-round pick uh, Devin Singletary out of Florida Atlantic, one of these lower-end schools you were talking about earlier, running back. He's behind Frank Gore, Shady McCoy. They got TJ Yeldon coming over as well, but uh, he could emerge and be a nice stash in 2020 Keeper Leagues and Dynasty Leagues. And all these guys, well, Gore and Shadier are on the wrong side of 30. Yeldon hasn't really had a chance to be that number one guy, another uh, Alabama running back. Um, but he hasn't really shown excellence per se. Uh, grabbing a, a running back with that many already in the stable in the third round, I thought was an interesting, an interesting get, and really avouched to Devin Singletary out of Florida Atlantic. Yeah, and especially this past weekend, there were a lot of questions that arose about Shady McCoy. So who knows honestly what's going to happen with him in that system, which could be even better for Singletary. Here's where I'm worried, uh, and his name is Lane Kiffin. Mm. I grew up a Trojan. And the three worst years besides the whole Reggie Bush, even though I love Pete Carroll, I don't hold that against him, besides the whole Reggie Bush situation, uh, was 2010 to 2013 when Lane Kiffin was the head coach of USC. One of the things that Lane Kiffin did very poorly was underdeveloped running backs. In 2010, Joe McKnight from SC was drafted in the fourth round by the Jets, didn't pan out. In 2011, Alan Bradford, Bradford excuse me, was drafted out of USC in the sixth round by the Bucks, didn't pan out. In the seventh round of 2011, Stanley Havili was drafted by the Eagles, didn't pan out. In 2006, when he was the offensive coordinator, Reggie Bush got drafted. We know what happened with that. Even as the head coach of Tennessee back uh, in 2006, he had Montario Hardesty, a second rounder, a guy who had two career NFL touchdowns, and that was it. So 
Another Wayne. name too, really quick, uh, which actually one of my favorite guys when he was at USC was Lendale White as well, who I think exactly he got drafted by was it Tennessee at the mm-hmm. time, and and he, he was had like, like a third rounder, I believe, too. Yeah, a couple goal line fall ins for a touchdown, but he never really panned out either. And that and that's my point is Lane Kiffin has not been kind to developing running backs, and these we're talking about a power five schools. We're talking about at schools who have the money to recruit top notch guys to bring in top notch developers. Or development got you know uh, trainers if you will I should say um, and if they didn't pan out at, from Tennessee and USC it's hard for me to imagine a system where somebody under Lane Kiffin at, at Florida Atlantic is going to pan out and I'm not taking anything away from Devin Singletary because he himself is actually I think an NFL ready back uh, perceptively when you look at him you could see him being successful in the NFL you could see him being successful especially in the Bills system in a system with Josh Allen um, you know, b- big arm, loves to run, throw him in the option with Singletary, and Singletary could probably be pretty productive. I, but the biggest question that surrounds it is, like you said, mid-major program, and then just Lane Kiffin. It just scares me. So, um, I and a deep backfield, like you said, Frank Gore, TJ Yeldon, who knows with Shady McCoy, but Frank Gore is injury-prone. TJ Yeldon is injury-prone and also lacks explosiveness from time to time. He's not very consistent. So maybe Singletary gets plugged in there. If Josh Allen can really utilize his arm effectively, that'll open up the backfield, and maybe Singletary does carve out a role for himself. Uh, But right now, I'm not so sure. And, uh, uh, you know, Buffalo the last couple years has been a run-heavy offense as well. So um, not tearing up the stat sheet per se, and Shady has been terribly inefficient, as many, many fantasy, uh, fantasy players know. Uh, as of late, but he he is getting the workload. He's just not doing anything with him at this point in his career. But Devin Singletary could be a sleeper, man. He could be – I don't want to say he's not Alvin Kamara per se, but he's in a similar situation Alvin Kamara was in coming into the league where he's behind, you know, Adrian Peterson, uh, um, Mark Ingram, and then Alvin Kamara. And those guys, you know, AP leaves, Mark Ingram splits the backfield. All of a sudden they find out what, what an athlete Kamara is and boom – there's the opportunity. So this could be Devin Singletary's backfield next year. Uh, so again, look, look, uh, look ahead at these guys in your late rounds for keeper leagues, the dolphins and the jets uh, didn't have much to talk about here on fantasy. Uh, I want to mention um, of course, the dolphins acquire quarterback, Josh Rosen, just a few days before the draft for the second round um, this year and a fifth round pick in 2020. And of course they get Kyler Murray. We talked about on the last episode, um, your quick thoughts on Josh Rosen in, in uh, Miami. And then for the jets, not much again for, um, fantasy as far as the draft goes, but I, you know, just want to mention quickly that Quinton Williams goes there third pick overall defensive tackle for Alabama considered one of the you know top prospects overall in the draft, uh, and was, you know, considered going one before all the hype for Kyler Murray picked up. So, um, he's a great team up with Leonard, uh, Williams on the defensive line there for the Jets. But let's uh, quickly talk about Josh Rosen um, in Miami, who I think could potentially be the worst team in the entire NFL this season. And then we'll get into the AFC South. Yeah, I love Josh Rosen. I feel so bad for the guy. He has been put into two just bad situations. First in Arizona with that terrible offensive line and not a lot of help around him. And now with the Dolphins. And I think the Dolphins are mismanaged, like truly mismanaged, because they've had talents. It hasn't panned out. And the system just hasn't worked. So here's what I'm worried about with Josh Rosen. I'm worried about the wide receivers. Kenny Stills is, you know, aging. Devontae Parker is explosive, but he's in, we've seen him be inconsistent. Uh, and I don't know how that benefits Josh Rosen in any way. My bigger concern 
is the offensive line, especially that center position. Daniel Kilgore currently is their only um, retained center from the last few seasons. He's currently injured, believe it or not. I think he'll, he's going to be ready for mini camps, uh, but he's currently listed as injured. They drafted two, or they, excuse me, they signed two undrafted centers from Wake Forest and Purdue. And then they also have a developmental center, Connor Hilland. I'm worried that Josh Rosen isn't going to get the protection that he needs and he's going to have some chemistry issues because the offensive line isn't solidified for the Dolphins and that'll in turn negatively impact his game. So that's my biggest worry with him in, in that situation. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's a, there's a potential to um, – give me one second here. Absolutely. Had a, mal, had a malfunction there on my on my side. We good? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, absolutely. We love technology and we hate technology. <laughs> it's good. It's good till it's not, right? Exactly. Um, we'll pick it up here. And, and honestly, I think what you mentioned too is that Josh Rosen, you know, got the shaft last year in Arizona. Shitty team. And then he gets kicked out of town for Kyler Murray. He gets traded to the Dolphins. Shitty team. And I think he's going to get kicked out of town again next year for, uh, you know, Tua or Herbert or – you know, somebody else coming into town uh, from who you mentioned earlier. Uh, I mean, the Dolphins need a quarterback. And if Josh Rosen doesn't prove himself immediately in town, which I think, I think Fitzpatrick uh, will, will, you know, lend over the keys. And I think it'll yeah. be Josh Rosen's team pretty quickly. Fitzpatrick seems like a homie of homies where he'll, you know, he'll play a couple games, throw picks, not give a shit. And then Rosen will get his chance, but you don't believe he, in any more Fitz magic. I dude, I, Hey, I am the Fitz magic train conductor. <laughs> I'm about it. I'm just saying he just isn't very good and right. he's, he's going to blow it. And when he does, the dolphins can't make it obvious that they're shitty and tanking. So they have to play Rosen. And when they do that, if he's not good with a bad team around him, which I don't think he will be, and maybe no fault to him, but nonetheless, not successful, it's going to be a hard sell for him and his agent to keep him in town. And he might get the boot again next year which that happening twice to a young quarterback with the kind of arrogance that he holds, I think it's going to be really hard for him to bounce back in year three, but that's a lot of hypothetical, but that's kind of my prediction of how things will go down. Um, nonetheless, I, I also am very concerned about the situation and I'm staying away from dolphins kind of in general this year. One last name for, uh, for this, I want to mention um, just because we, we, uh, we got to see him up close and personal for a handful of years up at UW. Uh, Miles Gaskins, running back from Washington, gets picked in the seventh round. Basically, just do you think he has a chance to get touches uh, with uh, Kenyon Drake and Kalen Balaj in the backfield? And if so, is he maybe a late dynasty stash or so? He had a really solid career at, at Washington. Yeah, I see him. I definitely see him uh, as perhaps a late round pick if you need you know, a younger running back and are looking for somebody in the future. I think that this guy can carve out the second string role for the Dolphins over the course of the season. I don't know how long it'll take. He certainly has the talent, but it, it, it's his job to lose. He compliments the, the running game of Kenyon Drake. I don't know if Bellage is going to pan out the way that, you know, we think his ceiling, his ceiling could be and how he could be running in that system. But Miles Gaskin, he, you know, he benefited from a really strong offensive line at Washington. He benefited from Jake Browning, who, while ha he had an off year this past season, still opened up uh, the run game because he was such a threat down the field. But Miles Gaskin also himself can create space. I mean, in 2017, when he was the, the Pac-12 running back of the year, he averaged 6.2, or excuse me, second. He was run up for Bryce Love. He averaged 6.2 yards per carry. 
and he still had 21 touchdowns, which is absolutely insane. By the way, that's 21 rushing touchdowns. He had three receiving touchdowns that year. So count him up to 24 touchdowns total in 2017. He's a five-tool player. Um, you know, he can catch out of the backfield. He can block for you because he's a wide body. He's not very tall, but he's a wide body. He can hit the A-gap quickly. He can, you know, split out wide and run around the seam or around the edge of the blocks. I, I really like him. I don't like him for the the system. I don't really like anybody for the system. Yeah. Um, but but I do think that he has the talent and he has the wherewithal to carve out that second string role. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't think that anybody should be banking on that for any reason to draft him um, outside of the super late rounds um, in a non-keeper league right now because I think that if he carves out a, a consistent role with this team, he'll be on plenty of waiver wires and people will be able to really benefit in that scenario from him. Um, but yeah, I, I really like him. He carved up the Ducks all four years that he played uh, two years at Austin and two years up in Washington. And Oregon's always had a pretty strong defensive line all four of those years. So it makes me hopeful that he's going to be able to really make a name for himself uh, whether it be in a backup role or eventually way, way down the line in a starter role in the NFL as well. Cool. I agree. Let's move on to the AFC South. We've got two more divisions here. Let's crank this out. Uh, not a ton of players to talk about in these divisions, um, but let's roll through them best we can. Jaguars first up, uh, seventh overall pick, Josh Allen, defensive end from Kentucky. Uh, but Narek Award winner, the nation's top defender. He's an absolute animal. Uh, here's a name that's a perfect, perfect player that Raider fans are like, um, maybe Mike Mayock didn't know Josh Allen was still on the board. Uh, this might have been a good move for the uh, for the Raiders there. But nonetheless, he falls to the Jags. They get a steal to really uh, help bounce back that defense that was unbelievable in 2017. Certainly fell off last year, uh, but Josh Allen's a great steal there. And then they get Jawan Taylor, uh, tackle out of Florida, 35th overall. He uh, bolsters an offensive line in front of Fournette, one of the best uh, tackles in the draft this year. Um, not much to talk about in Jacksonville unless you want to cut me off really quick. I wanted to move on to uh, A.J. Brown in Tennessee. Yeah, let's do it. Let's move on. A.J. Brown, wide receiver, Ole Miss, 51st overall. Antonio Brown's cousin and a nice second weapon outside along with Corey Davis. I am worried about the quarterback play. Unfortunately, of course, we're uh, – Marcus Mariota homers, but I've been very uh, honest on this podcast that I love him so much as a player. I root for him and I love him as a human being, but he has got a rough, rough injury history and he's, you know, his leash is getting very short in Tennessee. They bring in Ryan Tannehill, which does not move the needle at all for me personally. So I'm worried about that, but um, I, I think AJ Brown and Corey Davis is a great uh, young one, two punch that if they can figure out the quarterback position in Tennessee could be uh, quite Quite uh, dangerous moving forward, and of course, if they can cut Derrick Henry loose and if he can stay in his late-season form from last year, this offense could be really solid, and their defense was very impressive last year. Yeah, if I could get another 70 points out of Derrick Henry in a fantasy week, I would be very <laughs> happy. Uh, I think A.J. Brown has the potential to save Marcus Mariota because mm. A.J. Brown, much like DJ Metcalf, D DK Metcalf, excuse me, um, the other Ole Miss receiver taken by the Seahawks, has a very large catch radius, and he's a five-tool receiver. He's big, he's fast, and he's pretty scary. I'm not going to lie. Now, I'm very small, and, uh, you know, you can go look at my Facebook profile picture and make your own comments. But uh, he's, I think for anybody, A.J. Brown's scary. So I think that Marcus Mariota, who, aside from the injuries, aside from the bad offensive line, who I maybe it's me being a homer, maybe it's true, who 
why he's been unproductive over the last few years. I know they upgraded last year and then he got injured. The biggest critique for Marcus Mariota, at least for me, is that when he runs out of the pocket, which is pretty consistent, he's become a master at overthrowing wide receivers. Mm. Now, A.J. Brown, with his large catch radius, may not be as prone to overthrows as somebody like Corey Davis, who's a little bit smaller. So I think if Mariota can find a way to stop, you know, overthrowing wide receivers five to ten yards, and if he's overthrowing A.J. Brown three yards, four yards, this guy could probably get up there and catch it. So to have a receiver like this in this system could really help Mariota, but that has to be – the catalyst, excuse me, has to be that Mariota stays healthy and Mariota gets him the ball consistently. So I think that he's a great compliment to Davis. He's really good in the slot. He played in the slot when DK Metcalf got injured this past season out in Ole Miss and really excelled. His yards after catch are off the charts. It's just – or, you know, if they play Tannenhill, can Tannenhill – Tannenhill's not a down, down, downfield threat. He's not going to throw you, you know, bombs for 50, 60 yards, which is somewhere where A.J. Brown could really excel. So that's where I'm worried. I'm not worried about A.J. Brown. I think he's going to be a starter right off the bat. I think he's going to be a contributor. But like you said, it's the quarterback issues. But I think that he's the Mariota savior. We'll see what happens. Let's talk about a team that doesn't need to worry about their quarterback position, and that's the Arizona Cardinals, the Indianapolis Colts who have, of course, Andrew Luck back in prime shape after kind of starting off slowly last year after missing the entire last couple seasons. He came out guns a-blazing, second in the NFL in touchdowns. Now he has a compliment to T.Y. Hilton by drafting Paris Campbell, 59th overall wide receiver out of Ohio State. I'm not super pumped on the Devin Funches move coming over from Carolina. Maybe your take on that. I love this Paris Campbell fall here. Uh, T.Y. Hilton, Paris Campbell, and Devin Funches just being a huge body, coupled with Eric Ebron, possibly uh, Doyle as well. Um, Marlon Mack, this offense is is going to be lethal this year. Oh, this offense is going to be fun. I agree with you. I'm not a Funches guy. I think that people who like Funches bank on that one nice season that he had, um, but I, I don't think that we'll ever see that from him again. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be the, the benefit of having Andrew Luck back most wide receivers are uh, who can stay healthy I should say but you know Paris Campbell out of Ohio State this is where I want to emphasize that you have to remember that college offense is very different than NFL offense mm-hmm. you're not going to see a school uh, a, a record 90 catches out of Paris Campbell he set an, an Ohio State record last season for 90 catches and we all know how incredible Ohio State has been over you know the perennial powerhouse years that it's been Ohio State so you know, you look at it and you say, wow, this guy's really amazing. He played in uh, this incredible system, and he was still one of the most productive players ever. Absolutely. He also had Dwayne Haskins throwing him the ball, and they were playing um, – they were playing in a really good defensive conference, but he was the benefit of also having weapons around him to be able to then be productive thereafter. Now, you bring up the Colts in their offense with Andrew Luck and T.Y. Hilton in the backfield. That's going to benefit Paris Campbell because that's where the focus of these defenses is going to be. But again, you're not going to see him catching that as many being as nearly productive, I should say, uh, as he was at Ohio State. So for people who say, wow, you know, this game is going to translate. It's just simply not. That's just not how NFL works. Where he is going to excel is as a downfield threat, I think, uh, as parallel to T.Y. Hilton. He ran a 4-3-40, which is tied for the fastest wide receiver of the combine. That's phenomenal. Off the blocks, he's so fast. He could beat bigger cornerbacks. He could beat the nickel, the nickel corner. Um, 
And another, another guy who can run in between the seams in zone defense, where he's going to be overshadowed, in my opinion, is, is the short yardage game. That's where Devin Funchess, I think, is going to be productive because he is a big body. And, of course, Eric Ebron, who is Andrew Luck's favorite target in short yardage situations. So I don't see him being much – Paris Campbell, that is, being much um, uh, uh, of a use consistently for the Colts in those situations. But, you know, speedy, quick, good hands – it's going to be really good for him to have somebody like T.Y. Hilton and Eric Ebron receiving consistently also because that'll open up his game as well. So I really like the pick. I don't think Funchess is going to be too much of a threat to his production. Um, and I think, you know, if he stays healthy, playing with Andrew Luck is going to make this guy just byproduct a much better receiver. Uh, and he's going to fit the system really, really well, I think. Awesome. And I do have uh, – I'll get him out with my rankings later on. But just a quick teaser with all this Tyreek Hill business uh, getting sorted out right now. Um, before the Tyreek Hill news, I had uh, I had Mahomes, uh, Rogers, and Luck as my top three, with uh, Deshaun uh, Watson as my fourth. But I am flirting with the idea that Andrew Luck is my preseason quarterback number one right now, um, which we'll get to at another time. But I'm I'm really stoked on this. I agree with you that that you know Dwayne Haskins threw 50 touchdowns in college. And Paris Campbell had a, a literally like a, a Ohio State record year, but nonetheless, this offense in general is going to be incredible, and I think that Angela can certainly make the most of that. Let's move on to Houston. Uh, they pick up Titus Howard, tackle out of Alabama State, twenty third overall. He was actually recruited as a tight end before landing a tackle. He's super athletic, six five, three twenty two, and Deshaun Watson was sacked. In NFL worst or most, depending on how you think about that, the most times in the league uh, last year. So they definitely need to protect him. So, again, we don't start tackles in uh, fantasy football, but I think this helps Deshaun Watson tremendously. Uh, see if we can get him, um, you know, out, out of the pocket and, and being able to scramble with those uh, huge receivers there if everyone stays healthy. Let's move on to the uh, AFC North quick, man, and we'll get out of here. Uh, let's start with the Bengals. Jonah Williams, tackle, Alabama, 11th overall. He was the Jacobs Award winner, the SEC top O lineman. Pro Football Focus's number one run blocking grade, and he allowed zero sacks in 2018. That's obviously great for Andy Dalton and or whomever ends up being the uh, next quarterback there for Cincinnati. They also pick up running back Travion Williams out of Texas A&M. And Rodney Anderson, <clears throat> another running back. Out of Oklahoma, both six-round picks. Uh, Travion had a 4-5-40. Rodney is coming off of a torn ACL. Any comments on these late-round, six-round uh, picks? For the Bengals, of course, I can't imagine Joe Mixon's going anywhere anytime soon, but Gio Bernard could be, uh, could be short here with these young running backs waiting in the wing. Yeah, Trayvon Williams is going to give Gio Bernard a run for his money. I think just really quickly, I think just going back to the, the quarterback of the future thing, I think Rodney will be the quarterback of the future for – uh, the Bengals, the quarterback, they dropped it at okay. State in the fourth round. He's yeah. not going to be this year. It's not going to be next year, I don't think. Um, Dalton's still under contract for two years, and they said that he's their guy this year. Uh, but I do see him being the quarterback of the future in this in this program. There's a reason that they traded up to get him. And I can't believe he fell to the fourth round also. He, in some mock drafts, was as high as, you know, towards the end of the first round. So this guy was talented at NC State. Moving quickly now to Trayvon Williams uh, from Texas A&M. Reminds me a lot of Tavon Austin. He's 5'9". Uh, or excuse me, Tavon Austin was 5'9", Williams is 5'8", about 10 pounds heavier. But uh, in terms of speed, they're both pretty quick, I, I would say. <laughs> um, I think that Williams will start out primarily as a special teamer, kind of the way Brandon Bolden was for the Bengals when he was there. 
Um, but this guy is a really good pass catcher. And that's where I think Gio Bernard uh, could be in trouble with his job security because you have a, a, T, a T-bone flex formation where you have Mixon on one side of Dalton and you have Williams on the other side. This guy may actually be more of a threat than Gio Bernard is, who has had, had some inconsistencies these, these last few years. Um, and I also see Williams being productive in a five-wide set too, which they've been using with Dalton pretty consistently because they get you know down in games pretty quickly and have to make up the, the yardage. Uh, so... I see Williams being a part of that system off the bat. I see him contributing pretty soon down the line. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, I think he's going to be a, a better version of Gio Bernard because he's younger. Uh, I think he's a little bit faster, but he is a little bit smaller. We'll see how that affects him. I think Rodney Anderson was a pick purely for potential. You know, he had that that 13 touchdown, 1,100-plus yard season back in 2017. But you mentioned injuries, 2015, 2016, and 2018. I think – practice squad I think they're going to try to develop him on the practice squad uh, but I I really don't see him being on the the active roster to begin the season at least maybe even the entire season fair enough and good good call uh, on the back of quarterback I, I skipped over him that's an oversight on my part I just I didn't mention him just because I think that you know the Bengals have been so in love uh, with Andy Dalton forever that I just feel like <laughs> until he removes himself, there won't be <laughs> anybody I mean, else he, getting a chance there. Maybe Dalton leads him to the playoffs and because history can repeat itself, they take him out and put Finley in for the playoffs. So maybe they don't have that choking uh, liability that's been happening the last yeah, few years. And maybe with Marvin Lewis out of town, they might win a playoff game. And then, <laughs> and then it's a whole another situation in Cincinnati there. All right, let's move on to the other Ohio team. Of course, the super hot Browns. Um, really the buzz of the league all of a sudden. Uh, what a kind of awesome story this is for football fans who have been around for the last 20 years at least. Uh, they pick up Greedy Williams is the just the name I wanted to mention. If there's anyone else, holler at me. Cornerback uh, from LSU. And this is really just, I think, a huge pick for their defense. He's opposite of Denzel Ward, who we saw last year just you know rip up the league as a rookie out of Ohio state. And uh, this is just a, a really to cement their, their back end and their defense. The Browns defense is really awesome. They're young. They're up and comers. We all know what they did on the offensive side of the ball this year. The Browns, man, people keep going like, Oh, they could probably win eight games. They could probably win 10 games. They might win 12 games. They're going to make the playoffs. People are picking them for the super bowl. <laughs> like this shit is crazy, man. It's, it's just, it's super fun. Um, and if there's no one else for the Browns, we'll move on to the Steelers. But I, I thought this was a great pick for them in the second round to uh, bolster that back end of the defense. Yeah. I just can't. The Browns are going to turn it around as quickly as that, as they did. That's all I have to say. It's, it's amazing. And it's scary. Sure. Let's move on to the Steelers. Just two more teams here. Steelers and Ravens Steelers first Devin Bush linebacker out of Michigan 10th overall. He uh, fills in a lackluster linebacker play uh, since uh, Shazier went down a couple years ago. Um, There was a video on uh, Instagram or Twitter or whatever of uh, Shazier dancing, uh, which I thought was kind of cool. It's just kind of a silly thing to mention, but just one of those, like, he's active, he's up and moving. I mean, he was basically – He was basically, I mean, almost paralyzed, man. I mean, they – his football career may, may never actually happen. I think the Steelers are just being really sweet to just keep him on the roster uh, with the potential that he might ever come back. But the fact that he's up and up and moving after his uh, you know terrible injury a few years ago is pretty incredible. Um, so I thought that was nice. But Devin Bush is a huge uh, fill in there, number ten overall out of Michigan. In a linebacker position, they also pick up Benny Snell Jr. out of Kentucky in the fourth round, a running back, downhill runner. Nice compliment to James Conner. Um, maybe not m- much to talk about with these guys, but uh, Curly, who is another um, co-host here on the podcast, 
he is, uh, and rightfully so, super in love with James Conner. And to his credit, very much in love with James Conner before last year, going into the season, before all the Le'Veon saga hmm. bullshit. Um, he more or less called out the James Conner hype before it was real and wrote it all the way. So I just got to give Curly some credit there. But he and I have been talking back and forth about James Conner moving forward. Of course, they pick up another running back here. Um, how do you feel about the Steelers' backfield in general uh, this year? Of course, Lev now off to the Jets. But just really quick, it just you know I didn't we didn't prompt for this uh, or anything. I just am curious to get your take on James Conner in general and uh, just the Steelers' backfield moving forward. Which Le'Veon Bell, uh, D'Angelo Williams, so many people over the years have been uh, you know winning people titles for fantasy. James Conner did the same thing when he was healthy last year. Um, do you think they can repeat that this year with Antonio Brown leaving and, and Le'Veon Bell also being out of town? Yeah, from a non-fantasy perspective, I think James Conner proved that the running back position is the most malleable and the least impactful on the football field. You know, mm-hmm. Lev Bell wanted $18 million. No running back in the league is worth that because no running back uh, contributes. His impact is that great consistently for their team because you could find somebody like James Conner who is a really smart, really good runner not to pay him very much and he's going to be productive for you. And we see that year in and year out on multiple teams in the league. You know, Kenyon Drake is another good example. I think that, so I know you said quick, Benny Snell is actually the guy I probably did the most research on because Kentucky. Knock it out then dude. Yeah. Kentucky was a, a really interesting program this year for football. Kentucky obviously spends all of their money and their assets signing John Calipari for life and not caring <laughs> about football at all. Uh, last season, things changed. They had a re- great recruiting class two years ago. They developed these guys, Benny Snell being one of them, uh, and they really turned some heads. I think they got as high as 16th in the national polls before uh, dropping some games to, to Texas A&M and Georgia um, and Mizzou. But the one thing I found about Benny Snell, he did not excel against teams uh, ranked in the top 35 defensively for running defenses in the in the. He had one productive game against a top 80 rush defense, which was Penn State. It was in the Citrus Bowl last year, which was arguably the best time for him to prove himself because you're in a national spotlight uh, against a team from a a more superior conference. And they blew him out. I mean, Kentucky blew out Penn State in the Citrus Bowl and largely in part of Blake Snell's 144 yards and two touchdowns. It was phenomenal. Penn State was not a good rush defense, though, this past year. They were top 80. You go down the line against top 35 running defenses against Mizzou, who was number 22 in the country in rush defense. He went 19 for 67 with no touchdowns. Against Georgia, the number 31 rush defense in the country, he went 20 for 73 and one touchdown, which against Georgia, that touchdown actually kind of salvages his game. But 20 carries for 73 yards is not impressive in my mind. And against a team where you have to prove yourself, I think that he underperformed. Um, and then against Texas A&M, who was the number three rush defense in the country, he was 13 for 60 and zero touchdowns. Um, and those three games specifically are red flags to me because we talked about in our NFC conversation, uh, you know, players going against Clemson and underperforming and how Clemson was arguably the most indicative in college football of a defense to the caliber of an NFL team. Now I'm trying to give you the same here, the same kind of take with Kentucky playing some very strong rush defenses, perhaps the, the best that they played that resembled NFL rush defenses, and he was unproductive. 
Uh, so for me, that raises some red flags. The other thing that raises a red flag is his speed. He ran a 4.740. Um, he's known for his in-between tackle ability. He's not known for his, his explosiveness or his ability to run uh, off the block very quickly. So I think that that's going to hurt him. I think that when they play speedy defenses who, who blitz, he's going to get eaten up because he just lacks that explosiveness. He lacks that, I like to call it cut ability, where, mm. you know, you look, you look one way. It's kind of like that V cut in basketball. Same thing. He lacks that because he's just not quick enough on that initial cut to, to you know, sidestep or break a defender's ankles, and he'll get swallowed up on a, on a blitz. So, you know, Steelers have a great offensive line. James Conner is going to be the bulk of the production, which could open up his game. Um, but from this past season at Kentucky against the really, really good teams where he should have or where he needed to prove himself, at least for me, I don't think he did. Um, and that maybe that's just a Kentucky thing. But, you know, the Penn State game really saved him. I don't know if he put if he put up 144 yards and two touchdowns or if he didn't rather. I don't know if um, he would have even gotten drafted as high as he did. That performance really saved uh, his prospects. So I'm cautiously optimistic about Benny Snell because he has the luxury of being with James Carden and somebody like Big Ben who's been around and is a veteran, though Big Ben doesn't seem like he really cares about helping the younger players. Um, I don't know if that Mason Rudolph incident last year is any indication of that. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm, I'm very unsure about that. He's not. Thoughts on Jalen Samuel really quick. It was a great pick. Um, Jalen Samuel basically has that hybrid tight end running back situation. Yeah. And of course in Yahoo leagues, you were able to play him as a tight end as a running back, which is ridiculous when James Conner went down, <laughs> but just, just a thought there, honestly, man, you, you just, you know, brought up a lot of points there with, with uh, Benny Snell that I had overlooked. Um, I, I looked more into just kind of his overall numbers and you're right. I wasn't super impressed, but when you look, into who he was playing when they were playing. I think you just made a kind of a, a great case that he's at least, you know, has the potential, but I think you're right that, you know, it might've been a, a little overexcited there for the Steelers, but this is almost a red flag in the situation where I'm thinking like they have James Conner who clearly proved himself last year, but got hurt. He's been hurt. Of course he has his whole, you know, back, uh, backstory, um, and things. So he's just a player that I root for as a human being in the league. Uh, but then Jalen Samuels as well, who is a great kind of a PPR running back and right. potentially a tight end as well. So this will be interesting to see how things shake out here with, uh, with Benny Snell coming into town uh, with, with the Steelers. But I think nonetheless, of course, James Connors, the top running back there, but if anything were to happen, um, Benny Snell could be a nice uh, mid season pickup there. Um, as you mentioned earlier, let's get into the Ravens, man. This will be our last team. And then we'll jet. Uh, we got Marquise Hollywood Brown wide receiver out of Oklahoma, 25th overall and justice Hill, running back out of Oklahoma state in the fourth round for the Ravens. How do you feel about Hollywood Brown in this Ravens offense? Yeah. I normally don't praise the Ravens because my girlfriend's a Ravens fan and mine is too. <laughs> Great minds. Yeah. I mean, I grew up a Bengals <laughs> fan. Um, I can't say that I'm the biggest Bengals fan. I just like good football overall, uh, but I definitely do do love the Bengals when my girlfriend brings up the Ravens. Um, but I, I'm in love with these picks like Marquise Brown, uh, Hollywood Brown out of Oklahoma. The system that he played in Oklahoma is not unlike the system that he'll be playing in, a, in Baltimore, um, with the exception maybe Kyler Murray has a better passing ability, at least right now, um, than Lamar Jackson, because we know Lamar Jackson had the was, – was he 30th last year in, in passer rating, I believe? Mm -hmm. um, but – he was a rookie and he only got a couple, you know, he only got the, the back end of the season. 
uh, or most of most of the back end of the season, then a little bit of that first half. But I, I really think that having somebody like Marquise Brown is going to open up the game for Lamar Jackson. And I think Marquise Brown is going to excel. This guy, you know, he, he turns he turned short plays into long plays, which some for somebody like Lamar Jackson, that is absolutely necessary to have because you're going to get, you know, a 17 yard ball that you're going to be at, hopefully asked to turn into a 50 yard ball. And uh, Marquise Brown certainly has that ability. He's fast. Um, and he can also really open up the run game. We're going to talk about Justice Hill here in just a moment. But, you know, you have Mark Ingram, you have Gus Edwards, you have Justice Hill from Oklahoma State. All these guys are beneficial to you in the backfield. All of these guys have their own skill sets. Ingram, of course, for his downfield big ability. Gus Edwards uh, is a little bit smarter and patient. And Justice Hill is going to be an option threat. And I'll explain more here in just a moment. So, you know, to have Marquise Brown on the outside, to have Willie Sneed, another, another big play threat on the other side, it's going to open up the backfield. I think that that pick all around only helps almost every facet of the offense for the, for the Ravens. Awesome. And you know, everyone knocks Lamar Jackson. I, I made a, uh, one of, we did bold predictions and crazy calls last year, which we'll do again going into the season. And basically bold predictions are bold predictions. We all know those crazy calls were like extra ridiculous. Right. And one of my mm-hmm. crazy calls at the beginning of last season was that Baker Mayfield and Lamar Jackson going into the season, of course, they were backups, right? Right. Both of them would be a QB one from the time that they started through the rest of the season, which was correct. Lamar Jackson in fantasy football is plenty because he rushes. But let's not forget that he won a Heisman Trophy at Louisville, and he can throw the ball. They're a run-first team. He wasn't amazing throwing the ball, and but we, we did see in like – the last quarter and a half <laughs> when they lost to the Chargers in the playoffs. I was about to bring up that. Lamar game. Jackson funny. fucking ripped it up. Dude. Yeah. He was amazing. And I'm sitting on my couch like, dude, this is what I had been preaching on the podcast for like six months. And this dude's making me feel like an idiot because he hasn't <laughs> thrown the ball one time. And here he is lighting up the Chargers. He threw what, like three touchdowns in like six minutes or something stupid. And they came up short, of course, but he clearly has the talent and the ability to, to make a play. We've been talking about the last two podcasts. Play breaks down. He's got his wheels. He can chuck the ball. They have another big play uh, wide receiver now with, uh, with Hollywood Brown. Um, and uh, you know, John Brown was that guy last year who didn't get a lot of rep with, uh, with uh, Lamar Jackson. But, you know, I think that there's – I think Lamar Jackson's going to be a sleeper, man. I really do. People are going to pick him up for his wheels, which is true. But once he can figure out how to throw in an NFL offense – He's going to be nasty, dude. Him and Josh Allen are going to be ruthless when they figure out how to how to throw the ball at an NFL level. See, um, I don't think Josh Allen's ever going to figure it out, but that's a different conversation. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. And, and, you know, for for uh, for um, Hollywood Brown, man, I, I agree. I think the knock – not a knock, but people being like, you know, again, Kyler Murray is A, a much better passer or more accurate or this and this than – uh, Lamar Jackson is or the scheme and all this stuff. That's totally true. But again, just athletically, Lamar Jackson's able to do it. They just, you, you know, I don't think he's, he's had, had the opportunity or of right. course shown it. I mean, I, I keep sticking up for the guy and, and I just am eating my eating crow because he hasn't <laughs> done shit, but I'm still very confident that but you, he will eventually. You said it. He won a Heisman and his, everybody at Louisville saw him the same way that everybody saw Kyler at Oklahoma. Exactly. The exactly. same exact way. So for people who are writing off Lamar Jackson, you're wrong because he played not even a full season. Yep. He didn't have great wide receivers around him. 
And, and he's a smart guy who just needs a little bit more time to develop. And you said, like, in the last quarter and a half of the season, he showed a lot of signs of what I think he's going to build off of from, you know, the first gun blast that signifies the, the beginning of the season. So there is no reason for me to believe that Mar- this draft pick and then Lamar Jackson are, are going to be unproductive. This is the Ravens are going to be an interesting team um, and especially their offense. Totally agree. Last thing to bring up here, man, Justice Hill running back out of Oklahoma State. Fourth pick overall. He's a slasher to pair up with Mark Ingram. I love Mark Ingram's place with the Baltimore Ravens. That's another conversation. But uh, Justice Hill, last name here on the board. Yeah, um, he's an option threat, which I don't think that they have in the backfield right now with with Edwards and Ingram. And that really benefits Lamar Jackson. We know mm-hmm. um, that when you can keep defenses off balance and unsure of who's going to be running the ball, that that opens up the passing game, that opens up the running game further. Uh, and that's the game that the Ravens are going to try to run. And I think that Justice Hill is going to be a big part of that. We kind of saw a little bit with um, uh, with Buck Allen, a little bit of that with Buck Allen a couple of years ago, but Buck Allen is not nearly as fast as Justice Hill. This, this guy, Justice Hill, is the fastest uh running back in the combine i i like the pick i think he's going to be a great compliment to mark ingram uh and i think he could give gus edwards a run for his money in terms of consistent reps because as much as i like gus edwards and as much as i know ravens fans including my girlfriend who i believe gus edwards is her favorite player now that uh Weddle's no longer on the team nice. um, i well and she and she still claims that joe flacco's elite that's a whole other conversation anyways um i think <laughs> i think i think justice still has an opportunity to uh to really carve out a very consistent role i don't think that he'll be even seen as a as a backup because his game is going to be so different he might almost be like uh what alvin Kamara was to mark ingram not necessarily in bulk of pass catching but just in the style that he's going to be used in this backfield fair enough i love the take and my my uh, my lady's favorite player is justin tucker Ah. Um, and primarily because he can sing opera in seven different languages. So we, we talked about that. So what actually turned her off from Justin Tucker was the Irish jig that we saw from, um, Oh, Alex Collins from Alex Collins. She's like, well, now Alex Collins is my favorite player because I think the Irish jig is more (laughs) impressive than the, than the opera. So, uh, Ravens are so good at picking players who are eclectic outside of football. I, as much as I have a you know that little disdain for them, they are they are always a, a very interesting organization on and off the field. Love it, man. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, bro. I really appreciate you coming on. And and of course, listeners, I know these are both lengthy episodes. You know that we don't really care about that. We don't have a timeline. We're an independent podcast, just trying to give you as much value as possible. So make sure you flash back to Tuesday's episode and get uh, the NFC side of things and a full breakdown of what uh, Jonathan Rifkin's able to bring down from the collegiate side. We ran down the draft differently on that podcast a little bit on the NFC side. Before we get out of here, man, first of all, thank you again for having uh, for coming on the podcast. I would love to have you back uh, as the season progresses. Um, of course, you were in the uh, Listener League last year, and we would love to have you back again um, this year coming up. And uh, hopefully you can bring more value here to the podcast. Before we get out of here, please let our listeners know where they can find you. You have your own podcast. Uh, you're running broadcast. You're doing all sorts of things up and down the West Coast, social media, whatever. Now's your time to shine. Please let us know where we can find your things. Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at uh, Jay Rifkin. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jay.Rifkin. 
uh, if you you're, feel free to follow me, it's a public account. Um, my main right now, so my my podcast with my buddy Jonah Malkin, who uh, is over with WSUM in Madison, Wisconsin. We're at a season one hiatus. We're about to start season two here in a couple of weeks. Once uh, we both wrap up our graduation plans and are out of our respective college towns back in Los Angeles. Um, but uh, I'll be calling the last weekend of Oregon softball starting, I guess this will be on Thursday. So Thursday night, Friday night, on Saturday night, you can hear me um, on kwvradio.org if you're outside of the Eugene area. Uh, if you're in the Eugene area, 88.1 FM is where you can find me. Uh, and then I'll be a Friday host consistently up until June 16th when I graduate uh, for the radio station. Um, same same place you can listen to me on kwvradio.org. That'll be from six to seven. And we do, we're going to be doing some fun stuff. We're going to be doing a lot of NFL conversations specifically um, about some of these guys that we talked about from the Pac-12, Nikhil, Harry, Miles, Gaskin. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about, uh, we have an internal, currently at the radio station, an internal debate or internal feud, if you will, about is Justin Herbert overrated or not? Um, and that is going to be a very large topic of discussion mm. on my on my shows as well. We're going to get some good guests um, who are very knowledgeable on on some of these topics. Definitely feel free to tune in. Um, and in Sky, also for you guys, I've been I, I really enjoyed the listener league. I enjoyed meeting you uh, and getting to know you a little bit. And this this is awesome, man. Like the thing that you the candlestick kids do is is really special. You guys have a, a really cool thing going here, and I I'm really privileged to be a part of it right now. I appreciate it, man. Love reciprocated. I wish you well, and, and congratulations on your success. And uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and Eugene, Oregon are two of the best college towns in the nation. I have traveled the, the country numerous times with my band over the years, and um, love, love, love Madison, Wisconsin. So um, that's that's awesome that you guys are representing those cities. Also, Curly and Daniel are out of Berkeley and ASU, two other great college towns so uh we're really really wrapping it up here man i appreciate your time thank you so much and um you can uh tune back on tuesday again to hear the nfc side and uh, i really appreciate you having on brother let's do it again soon sounds good sky thanks so much That'll do it for this episode. Be sure to email your fantasy questions heading into 2019 to tckpod at gmail.com or shoot us a DM on Instagram at tckpod underscore fantasy football or on Twitter at tck underscore pod. We use the hashtag tckpod if you want to check out any previous posts. And you can now find us on Facebook at the Candlestick Kids Fantasy Podcast. If you've gotten any value at all from this podcast, please leave a rate and review for the podcast and give us a like and a follow on our socials. It really does mean the world to us. Make the most of the rest of your day, and we'll catch you next time on the Candlestick Kids Fantasy Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. For Jonathan Rifkin, I'm Scott Guasco, and we are out of here! Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.